All right, we're going to get started with very few people. As, uh, as we'll talk about today, God is sovereign over the number of people who are here, but everyone who's missing is responsible for that fact. So uh, let us go ahead and pray. Let me pray for us, and, uh, and we'll get started. Father, we thank you so much for uh, your grace, your goodness, your kindness, your love for us. We thank you for an opportunity this morning to dive into um, theology, to dive into doctrine, to dive into your word, and uh, to consider what it is that you've re- revealed of yourself. And I pray that you would help us this morning as we talk about something that is uh, somewhat uh, philosophically difficult, somewhat that uh, kind of grates against uh, our sense of right and wrong. And, uh, and so I pray that you would protect us, protect us from in any way understanding this in such a way as to diminish your glory, as to uh, to make us suspicious of you or anything like that, Lord. And so, would you help our hearts to incline toward truth and find it to be uh, lovely and beautiful and good and right this morning? And so, help us, we ask, uh, just in dependence upon you and the work of your Spirit. And so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this, uh, this morning we're talking about uh, divine providence and human responsibility. Last week, Zach uh, kind of talked about uh, sovereignty and as it relates to the problem of evil, which is called a theodicy, and, uh, and so we're really going to get into to the, uh, the implications of this as it relates to our will. So how, how does God's sovereignty overlap with or interplay with uh, our responsibility as, as culpable human beings? And so how can God be totally sovereign and yet uh, us still be responsible or culpable for our sin. And so I wanted to get, begin just with an illustration that I've used a, a number of times. And so those of you who've heard it a few times, uh, forgive me for using it again. But uh, when I was a kid, I was playing tug-of-war up on this platform about six feet uh, high and uh, had this little sheet that we were using to, uh, to play tug-of-war with. And... Uh, I'm getting a phone call from an elder right now for some reason. Uh, and, uh, and so playing tug-of-war, and uh, the person that I was playing tug-of-war with just all of a sudden let go of, uh, of the blanket. And I, so I fell six feet back. Uh, I, I was about four or five years old. Fell straight on my head, and, uh, and so I got a concussion, and so that was that. And, uh, and so this illustration, I think, serves for the importance of us, when it comes to theology, to hold tightly to areas of tension, even if we can't understand how to resolve that tension, to not let go of one side. If you let go when you're playing tug-of-war, what happens? You tumble off, uh, and, uh, and sometimes there's no consequence of that, but sometimes there's a huge consequence. Sometimes you fall off of an edifice or whatever it might be. And so uh, this is going to come up oftentimes whenever we're talking about uh, things in theology where we, our natural minds, want to kind of reduce things down to its lowest common denominator. We want to simplify things to such an extent that we can understand them in our kind of finite, frail human minds. We can fully understand, and that's just not the way theology works. So we've seen it a number of times. We've seen how we have to uphold that God is one and God is three. Now, we mean different things. His oneness is different from His threeness, but nevertheless, it is theologically true that God is one and God is three. And if we stress God's unity at the sake of His diversity, we end up in error. If we stress His diversity at the expense of His unity, we end up in error. Same thing with uh, Christ's deity and His 
humanity, that we have to hold both of those things tightly. We don't let go of one or the other. We don't pull too hard in one direction at the expense of the other. So if you stress God's uh, or Christ's deity in a way that neglects His humanity, you run off into errors. That's actually what we'll talk about uh, in a couple of weeks. Uh, and, uh, and vice versa. So that's what we're talking about today is the fact that when we're having this discussion, we need to understand, we need to recognize that we need to hold tightly to both sides of the equation, that God is absolutely sovereign, and yet we bear responsibility. And our job is not necessarily to figure that out completely. Our job is not necessarily to understand how God can be absolutely sovereign and we can be responsible. Our job is to simply rest in what God has revealed of Himself that there are no limits to His sovereignty, even human will. And yet, uh, at the same time, we understand that, God, uh, that man is responsible for his, uh, his sin. And so that's what we are going to uh, kind of present today, this sort of idea. So these are the two truths that I want you to walk away with uh, today. If you hear nothing else, I want you to just recognize, to embrace, to realize these two things. One, that God is absolutely sovereign. God is absolutely sovereign. We talked about that uh, last week. We'll uh, continue to talk about it. There are absolutely no limits to His sovereignty. But at the same time, His sovereignty never functions in such a way as to reduce human responsibility. So we can't say, well, because God is sovereign, I'm not responsible. That sort of uh, cultural critique that, uh, well, I'm born this way or whatever it might be. Uh, So God's sovereignty never limits or reduces or negates man's responsibility. You can't say, well, God made me do it, so therefore I'm not responsible. Uh, And so that's the first thing. God is absolutely sovereign. The second one, that human beings are responsible creatures. That is, they choose, they believe, they disobey, they respond, and there is moral significance in their choices, but human responsibility never functions in Scripture to diminish God's sovereignty or to make God uh, absolutely contingent. I found this quote uh, by Spurgeon to be helpful. Charles Spurgeon said this, If then I find taught in one place that everything is foreordained, that is true. And if I find in another place that man is responsible for all his actions, that is true. And it is my folly that leads me to imagine that, there, that two truths can ever contradict each other. Right? So he's saying there are these two truths that we see in Scripture. One, God is absolutely sovereign. Absolutely every single thing, including man's will, is under the realm, under the banner of God's sovereignty, and yet at the same time, man is responsible for his sin. And if we can't understand how to fully parse that out, if we can't understand how those things can both be true, the problem uh, resides in us. The problem is not in God or in uh, His Word. And so this is the idea that's called compatibilism. That's what, uh, that's what theologians call this, the idea that God can be sovereign and man can be responsible, and those things are not in contradiction, those things are compatible. That's why it's called compatibilism. So you can take compatibilism, this is uh, where we land uh, as a church in our understanding of how God's sovereignty and human responsibility uh, overlap or inter- interact. That's compatibilism, that's where we land. You could contrast that with what's called fatalism and then also what's called libertarianism, all right? So fatalism is uh, kind of the the view of uh, God's sovereignty that kind of makes people just mere puppets, mere robots, something like that. It's this sort of impersonal view of God's sovereignty 
that, uh, that kind of lets go of the idea that humans are responsible. Uh, and then on the other end, you would have what's called libertarianism. Libertarianism, as we'll talk about, is a view of, of man's freedom that really says God's sovereignty goes all the way to the edges of man's will, but it doesn't infringe upon man's will. That God's not sovereign when it comes to the decisions, the choices, the actions that mankind uh, does or thinks or whatever it is, uh, but that God's sovereignty kind of has a, a, a limit to its uh, expression. So you have libertarianism, which kind of denies uh, God's sovereignty. You have fatalism, which denies man's responsibility. You have compatibilism, which are going to hold both of these two things uh, together. Does that make sense? what we're talking about. So we're talking about compatibilism, the idea that God can be absolutely sovereign and uh, at the same time man can be responsible uh, for his sin. So let me, let me begin by giving you an illustration that I think is going to be really helpful as we uh, talk about this uh, topic. Because I think if we can grasp this one area, this one example, this one illustration of this idea of compatibilism, it will help us by kind of providing a framework for understanding the topic in general. In other words, if we can understand it when it comes to this particular area, then I think we can extrapolate from that into a more general understanding of uh, compatibilism. And so, uh, here's what I want to do. I want to do a, a little bit of a thought experiment with the death of Christ. So, think about the death of, uh, of Christ. And I would argue that every single one of us, whether we understand it or not, every single Christian, on some level, when they think of the death of Christ, on some level, every single one of them is a compatibilist. They're not a fatalist. They're not a libertarian. They are a compatibilist. That is, that they see an interaction between God's sovereignty and human responsibility in this one area. And so what I'm, what I'm arguing, again, is if we can make a case for it in this area, then we can extrapolate from that and see it uh, more uh, generally. And so let me ask you a question. All right, you don't have to answer this out loud, but think about it. Who killed Jesus? Who killed Jesus? If someone were to ask you who killed Jesus, think about all the different ways that you could answer uh, that question. Somebody shout out one correct answer. Okay, God, the Romans, keep going. Judas, us, there's a sense in which that's true. The Jews, the Sanhedrin, right? There's on and on. You could go all these different levels. Now, do those things contradict each other? If Judas is responsible, does that mean that Herod is not? Or if Herod is responsible, does that mean that Pontius Pilate is not? Or if Pontius Pilate is responsible, does that mean the Romans are not? No, there are different levels. There are different levels of complexity uh, there. There's lots of different ways that you could answer it. So, uh, here's what I want to do. I want to I begin by showing God's sovereignty over the act. And so you have this uh, in your notes. So did God ordain the death of Christ? Did God orchestrate the death of Christ? Is there a sense in which God is responsible for the death of Christ? Absolutely. Isaiah 53, verse 4. Uh, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. We use the word smitten like I'm in love with something. I'm smitten. Uh, that's not the way it means. It means to be smited, to be beaten. And, uh, and so, uh, smitten by God and afflicted. Jesus is uh, going to be, according to this uh, prophetic literature, smitten by God and afflicted. Later on in Isaiah 53, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. That first 
part of the, the sentence there. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will we not also with Him graciously give us all things? So God didn't spare His own Son. Or Romans 3.25, Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. There's certainly a sense in which you can see God's sovereignty at play in the death of Christ. There is a sense in which God is responsible for the death of Christ. Everybody get that? Everybody embrace that? That shouldn't be uh, like uh, upset anybody too much. We all know this is part of God's plan. This is the very hope that we have in the gospel that God would make propitiation for us, that He would satisfy His wrath and uh, forgive our sins. And so it's easy for us to see God is responsible when it comes to the death of Christ. But at the same time, we would say people are still culpable, people are still responsible, and, uh, and so you could blame Judas, you could blame Pilate, you could blame Herod, the Roman soldiers, the Jewish crowd, the Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin, on and on. John 19, verses 10 through 11, so Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Listen to this next part. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Speaking of Judas, so uh, Jesus would say here, even though God is sovereign, God is responsible, God has ordained this, God has orchestrated it, he's done it in such a way that Judas, in his betrayal, is guilty of sin. Does that make sense? And then in Acts 3, uh, Peter speaking to the Jewish crowd, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Again, God is sovereign over it, but His sovereignty doesn't work in such a way as to negate man's culpability. It doesn't somehow mean because God's sovereign over it, Judas is innocent. Or because God's sovereign over it, the Sanhedrin is innocent. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility are both held uh, together. So we've seen here that it's possible, at least in the death of Christ, for divine sovereignty and human responsibility to coexist in the same event. In other words, they don't contradict each other. They're compatible. That's why it's called compatibilism. They're compatible with each other for God's uh, sovereignty and human responsibility uh, to coexist. So, the idea is, if in this particular event we can see an example of compatibilism, why can't we extrapolate from there and see it uh, on a more gen general level, which is what we'll talk about here uh, in uh, a second. So again, to understand compatibilism, all you're doing is this. You're understanding that God is absolutely sovereign, and yet man is responsible. God is absolutely sovereign, and man is responsible. That's the pattern that you need to see in Scripture. You don't have to fully embrace or understand how those two things fit together. You just can't let go of one end or the other. When you're playing this tug-of-war, you can't let go, and you can't say God's sovereignty, therefore, is going to negate man's responsibility, or that man's responsibility is going to negate God's sovereignty. You have to hold on to both sides of those. In fact, when it talks about the death of Christ, the Bible is going to put together these two ideas in a couple of places. And so, uh, you have in your notes there, Acts chapter 2, verse 23, this Jesus 
delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That's sovereignty. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That's responsibility. Or Acts 4, 27 through 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. That's responsibility. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That's sovereignty. So again, compatibilism is just this idea that we can't use sovereignty to negate responsibility or responsibility to negate sovereignty. Those two things are compatible. They don't contradict each other. However it is that God is sovereign, His sovereignty doesn't reach a limit when it comes to our will, when it comes to our choices, when it comes to uh, these sorts of things. So again, if we can understand compatibilism here, just when we're talking about the death of Christ, then I think it's easy for us to use this as a filter, to use this as an illustration, to use this as an example, to then understand how God's sovereignty and man's responsibility uh, can, uh, can both be true in, uh, in general. So what I want to do is I want to kind of go back and I want to really work on solidifying our understanding of these two different truths, that God is sovereign and man is responsible. So let's start with uh, God's sovereignty. We've talked about this uh, before in theological equipping, so it's something that you should be really familiar with. Uh, we see as we look through Scripture that there are uh, passages that talk about uh, God being sovereign over weather phenomena, such as rain or snow or lightning. There's actually a blog on our website called Sovereign Over the Small Stuff that you can look at, and it'll have all the things I'm about to read off. He's sovereign over the, the direction of the heavenly bodies, according to Job 38 and Matthew 5. The distribution of food for animals, according to Job 38, Psalm 104, Matthew 6. He's uh, sovereign over the life and death of animals, according to Matthew 10. The rise and fall of nations, according to Job 12 and Psalm 22. The decisions of the leaders of nations, according to Proverbs 21. The times and places in which people live, Acts 17. The length of our lives, Job 14, Psalm 139. The fruitfulness of our wombs. Psalm 127, seemingly random or chance occurrences, Proverbs 16, the direction of our every step, Proverbs 16 and 20, Jeremiah 10, Philippians 2, and the provision of everything that we have received, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4. And so on and on we could go with all of these different examples of God being sovereign over things that seem to be small things. It's the idea that uh, we talked about last week. I think uh, Zach might have used the term meticulous meticulous sovereignty, that God's sovereignty extends down into the very details of our lives. It's not just big picture sovereignty. It's not like He's sovereign and He just kind of lets things kind of go as they are, and then He kind of interacts or interjects every once in a while, pushes us back on the right track. And that's what I do with, uh, with, uh, with my daughter. If she's kind of walking and she's kind of starting to, she's not paying attention and she's kind of moving towards the wall, I'll just kind of move her back, and then I just let her walk, and then I kind of move her back and let her walk. That's not how God's sovereignty works. It's meticulous sovereignty. It's in the details, the minute, uh, the minutia of life. And so, uh, we, we mentioned a few texts last week that are really difficult. I want to kind of work through those again to kind of really uh, kind of build a foundation of understanding uh, the, the realm, the extent of God's sovereignty, that there are no limits to His sovereignty. And so, we'll just talk about a few of these difficult texts that we don't like to really wrestle with because it kind of infringes on our understanding of, uh, 
of um, the way that we think of responsibility or freedom or something like that. And so, think about Job. Think about the story of uh, Job and Job's suffering, all right? You probably thought about before the fact that it's really interesting that, uh, that God suggests Job to Satan. If you remember the beginning of the story, Satan is kind of uh, going to and fro throughout the earth, and, uh, and so it's God who actually appears, uh, or God who actually speaks to Satan and says, have you considered my servant Job? So everything that, God, that, that Job is about to experience is actually part of God's plan for Job. Not only that, but He gives permission to Satan. Satan has to ask him for permission. Can I do this? Can I do this? Yes, you may do this, but you can't do this. Yes, you may do this, but you can't do this. You can touch all of his stuff, but you can't touch him. And then you can touch his body, but you can't kill him. There's all these limits that are placed upon uh, Satan's ability. Uh, Isaiah chapter 10, we have this. I think this is in your notes. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. All right, and so Assyria is raised up as a rod to beat the back of Israel in the Old Testament. Assyria is raised up. Assyria, this godless nation, is raised up against Israel for departing from the faith, from forsaking Yahweh. So God raises up Assyria to punish Israel, and then God punishes Assyria for its excesses in punishing Israel. God's people. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. So Assyria doesn't in that moment recognize that they are doing the work of Yahweh. Assyria is doing what's in their own heart. What's in their own heart? To punish to destroy, to conquer. That's all Assyria is thinking. Assyria is not thinking we are just vessels in the hand of Yahweh and just simply doing the will of the Lord. No, they are simply doing what's in their heart, which is evil and wickedness. And so God judges them, even though God uses them to judge His own people. First Samuel chapter 16, now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. I think... Uh, Zach talked about that a little bit uh, last week. First Kings chapter 22, Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. So the Lord can use a lying spirit. The Lord can use a harmful spirit in order to accomplish good purposes and plans, in order to judge His people, in order to, uh, to punish them, in order to discipline them that they might turn Amos chapter 3, verse 6, is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? That's intended as a rhetorical uh, question, the answer being no. Disaster doesn't come to a city unless the Lord has done it. Again, Amos is coming from this perspective that there is no limits for God's sovereignty, that we can't, uh, it's no biblical solution to say, well, yeah, God didn't intend that flood or that famine or uh, the destruction of the Assyrians or whatever it might be. Does a disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? No. In some sense, the Lord is behind all things, which is why he says in Isaiah 45, 7, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all of these things. The prophets don't shy away from God's sovereignty. Lamentations chapter 3, 
Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? So the Lord uh, uses both good and bad in order to accomplish His purposes. And as we saw last week, Daniel 4.35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, what have you done? This is meticulous sovereignty, the idea that there is no realm, there is uh, no aspect, there is no little pocket, little uh, maybe a little corner of the universe that God's not sovereign over that. God is, uh, God's not exercising His providence over that particular area. Even, uh, even evil acts, God somehow stands behind them, not to do evil, but in order to accomplish good. And I think we see that in the death of Christ. Like if I were to ask you, what's the most evil act that's ever occurred in the history of the world? You could look at and you could say, you know, genocide that takes place in Rwanda. You could say the Holocaust. You could say the genocide of uh, Pol Pot's regime uh, with the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. On and on you could go all of these different examples. But I, I would argue that the most evil act that's ever occurred is the death of Christ. He's the only person who's ever lived who didn't deserve to die that actually dies. But also, at the same time, we would say, what's the greatest act that's ever happened? You say the death of Christ. You see here how something can be both the e- most evil act and also the best act ever. That is this idea of compatibilism. That's the idea of uh, God can stand behind an evil act and yet uh, use it, leverage it for good, uh, ordain it for good. And so we see in the Bible, we see this view of God's sovereignty where He'll say things like Romans eight twenty eight that all things work together for good. Ephesians 1.11, He works all things according to the counsel of His will. Psalm 115.3, He does whatever He pleases. And Psalm 135.5, whatever the Lord pleases, He does. And so there's no limits to God's sovereignty. But does this view of God's sovereignty, does that therefore mean that man is not culpable, that man is not responsible for his sin? That's the question that Romans 9 is trying to get to in verses 19 through 21. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So does God's sovereignty limit uh, man's responsibility? Look in Matthew chapter 12, 36 through 37. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Ezekiel 18, 20. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. That man is culpable or responsible for his own sin. Ecclesiastes 7.29, see this alone I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes, the evil schemes, the wicked schemes, uh, the sinful schemes of mankind are attributable only uh, to man, which is why James will say, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own uh, desires. We get some really interesting passages in Scripture 
that are going to kind of show us uh, another sort of illustration of this idea of uh, compatibilism, the idea that God can be sovereign and man can be responsible. And, uh, and so, one of the ways that we see this is there are certain passages that talk about God exercising His sovereignty even over man's will, even over man's uh, choices uh, that He makes. And so, uh, Zach briefly mentioned this last week. I wanted to expound upon it. In 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1, it says, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and He incited David against them, saying, go, number Israel and, uh, and Judah. Zach mentioned how 1 Chronicles 21 uh, kind of puts Satan in, in this equation as well. You have the Lord, you have David, you also have Satan. Then Satan stood, stood against Israel and incited David to number uh, Israel. Does anybody ha- remember how this account ends up? What happens? David numbers Israel and then. Yeah, yeah. God gives him three choices for how he gets punished. So even though, in some sense, God incites David, what does God still do? He punishes David. All right? God exercises his sovereignty, but his sovereignty is not exercised in such a way as to make uh, David uh, non culpable, to make him not responsible for his uh, sinful acts. It's sinful for him to count, to number Israel, because his motivation in doing so is to put his hope, to put his trust, to put his rest in the fact that he has 500,000 troops or 750,000 troops or whatever it might be. And, And Yahweh has told him over and over and over again, your hope is never in that. That's the whole story of Gideon, right? He has too many troops, and so he whittles them down. And so, uh, so God can uh, incite David. He exercises sovereignty in such a way as to incite David to do this act that God then judges David for doing. For Samuel chapter 2, we see another example of this. Uh, this is Eli speaking to his sons. And Eli says, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate uh, for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But it says, but they would not listen to the voice of their father, for because it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. They would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. So we see that uh, God exercises his sovereignty. He desires to put Eli's son to, uh, to death because they are uh, priests who have uh, forsaken the true worship of Yahweh. Genesis 20, we see another example of this, uh, although kind of the, the opposite end of the spectrum, not to God inciting somebody to sin, but keeping somebody from sin, showing this idea, again, that man's will somehow is not beyond the realm of God's sovereignty. Genesis 26, uh, God says uh, in a dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. This is speaking of uh, Abraham's uh, wife, Sarah. And so, kind of the idea there, the, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps in Proverbs uh, 16. So, again, therefore, God can be absolutely sovereign, we saw that, and yet, yet can uh, exercise his sovereignty in such a way as to justly hold man accountable for his sin. So, that brings up the question, what about free will? What do we do with uh, free will? If God is sovereign, even over the decisions that I make, the choices that I make, 
what do I do with uh, free will, which kind of reminds me of uh, Inigo Montoya. You use that word, I don't think you understand what it means. And so free will is this really complex, uh, difficult uh, topic, and so I want to kind of boil it down and show there are a number of different ways that you can understand uh, the term. Uh, there are two uh, views in particular uh, as it relates to this, uh, this conversation that I think are helpful to understand. And so, two different ways that you can understand freedom. If I say that you have freedom as a human, there are two different ways that I can mean it theologically, all right? The first one is what's called libertarian free will, right? Libertarian free will, which is similar to this idea that we talked about uh, earlier. Libertarian free will is, is called the power of contrary choice, which says that humans are, are free to make choices that are unhindered in any way or unencumbered by anything or anyone, whether internal or external. Libertarian free will, the power of contrary choice, which says that humans are free to make choices which are in, unhindered or unencumbered by anything or anyone, internal or external. All right? That's the libertarian uh, view of free will. In other words, that you have ultimate self-determination. In order for something to be truly free, you have to have the ability to have done the opposite. All right? Now, that's not what the compatibilist says about free will. The compatibilist can talk about free will, but they mean something different by the phrase than the libertarian. What the compatibilists mean is that humans are free to do according to their nature. You're free to do according to... Uh, your uh, nature. In other words, we don't make choices that are contrary to our desires or nature. Let me ask you a question. If you were to climb up on uh, this uh, chapel, all right, uh, as Jerry sometimes does for s some reason in his sandals, and, uh, and so he gets up there and he checks the steeple. I don't know what he's doing up there, but uh, he does. So if you get up there and you go to the steeple and you just jump off and you say, you know what, I want to fly. Are you going to be able to do that? Probably not, right? Unless someone's a mutant in here or something like that. Why? Because our nature is limited. If you're a bird, could you have done that? Yeah. If you're a bird, you can get up there and you can fly. But as a human, you can't. Now, would you therefore say, then, okay, then I guess I'm not free? No, you wouldn't say I'm not free just because I can't fly. Why? Because you understand your freedom is always going to be bounded by your nature. In some sense, you're free, but in another sense, you're only free to do what is in your nature. So think about this from the perspective of uh, theology. Biblically, the Bible says that your nature, you are by nature children of wrath. We talked about that in Ephesians chapter 2. That apart from Christ, your nature is only sinful. Your nature only loves sin. So what are you free to do? apart from Christ. Sin. That's what you're free to do apart from Christ. So you see this, there's this uh, trajectory in the biblical storyline. Uh, and, uh, and so human beings were originally created with what we call true freedom. They're originally created with true freedom. True freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want to do. I would argue biblically, true freedom is the ability to love and serve God unencumbered by sin. That's what true freedom is, the ability to love and serve God unencumbered by sin. Who's the most free being in the entire, in existence? God. Are there things God can't do? 
Yeah, we've talked about those before. Give me, give me an example of something God can't do. He can't lie. He can't change. He can't sin. There are certain things God can't do, but we wouldn't look at that and say, that means that God, therefore, is not free, would we? No, God is the most free being in the world. Why? Because what our understanding of freedom is needs to change. You see, we've bought into this idea that freedom is ultimate self-determination, all right? We're, we're products of, uh, you know, 250 years or so of the American experiment, uh, experiment that upholds liberty as the highest ideal. And liberty, from an American perspective, is not freedom to love God. Liberty is, from a, an American uh, perspective, the freedom to determine your own destiny. And, uh, and so, human beings as created had true freedom, which is the ability to love and serve God unencumbered by sin. They also had what's called freedom of choice. Freedom of choice is just the, the ability to, uh, of human beings to do as they desire, the ability of human beings to do as they desire. So when humans were originally created, they had those two different types of freedom. Uh, they had true freedom, and they had freedom of choice. But human beings as fallen, so after the fall, you see that, uh, that they lost true freedom. They don't have the ability to love God unencumbered by sin. So they lose true freedom, and uh, at the same time, though, they have retained what's called freedom of choice. And then you have human beings as redeemed who've regained a measure of true freedom. We now have the opportunity uh, as those in Christ. We have the opportunity for hearts have been born again. We have the opportunity now to begin to experience true freedom again. That is, we have an ability to begin to love God as unencumbered by sin. And we've also retained freedom of choice. And then lastly, human beings is glorified. So whenever Jesus returns, whenever we experience the resurrection, we'll be perfected in true freedom, and we'll also have freedom of choice. So you see, all along we've always had freedom of choice, all right? We've always had freedom of choice. Freedom of choice is just the ability to do as you desire. The problem is, if you are outside of Christ, all you desire is sin, that's all you desire. Everything that you desire apart from Christ is somehow sinful. If the, uh, if the entire purpose of man is to glorify God, then you're incapable of doing that apart from Christ. So, you've always had this freedom of choice, but what's really important is this idea of fr- true freedom, the ability to love and serve God unencumbered by sin. So, if someone were to ask you the question, are you free? Are you free? Do you have free will? Here's an interesting way to think about it. It depends on who we're talking about, right? Because if we're talking about humans as they were originally created, they had various uh, means of freedom that we don't have now. If you're talking about a man in his fallen condition, you're talking about those that are outside of Christ. You're talking about those that are in Adam. There's a different uh, understanding of freedom than those that, uh, uh, that we might possess now, so biblically, let's look at uh, let's look at a few passages here that talk about, uh, especially uh, human beings as fallen, human beings as fallen. John chapter eight thirty one through thirty six, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, "If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free." They answered him, "We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free?" 
And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. In other words, you're not free apart from Christ. You're enslaved to sin apart from Christ. If you want to be free, you have to trust Christ. That's the only way that you can begin to retain some of this understanding of freedom. But what is freedom? Freedom is the ability to love and serve God as unencumbered by sin. Apart from Christ, the Bible says that our eyes are blind, our minds are darkened, our ears are deaf, our hearts are darkened. We're enslaved to sin. We're foolish. We hate God. We are dead. So is a blind man free to see? Is a deaf man free to hear? Is a dead man free to live? That's why uh, Jeremiah will say, can, it, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then you also who can do good, then also you can do good who are accustomed uh, to do evil. Jeremiah uh, chapter 13, verse 23. And, uh, and so biblically we see we're not free in this sense of being uh, able to do anything that we, uh, to, to have contrary, the power of contrary choice. We're free to do what's in our very nature. What's in our nature apart from Christ is sin, and so we're free uh, to do sin. Calvin, uh, Calvin speaks about this, as does uh, Martin Luther and Jonathan Edwards, and they all kind of use uh, a similar illustration that I think is, uh, is helpful. And so uh, imagine, if you will, and they're trying to get to, the, to the, the root issue of how can God hold us responsible if, uh, if we really believe that we're enslaved, if we really believe that we can't do anything other than what our very nature is, and we inherit a sinful nature, how does God hold us responsible? And so they, they gave this example that I think is, uh, is really help, helpful. So imagine, if you will, that I pull a chair upon uh, stage, and, uh, and then I put uh, Mark Landers in that chair, all right? And let's imagine I just, I, I just tie him down, all right? Rope after rope after rope. Let's imagine he's not like Samson or something. He can't just break it. And, uh, and so he's tied down there really well. And then I tell him, stand up, and he doesn't. Can I hold him responsible for that? Now, you as parents, do you hold your kids responsible for not doing something that they're incapable of doing? Like right now, should I punish my daughter for not being able to, you know, recite the entire book of uh, Romans at, you know, 18 months old or whatever she is? No, of course not. Why? Because we understand there are certain things that we don't hold people responsible for if it's not in their nature. Now, let me give you another illustration. Let's say that, uh, that I put a chair up here. I put Mark in it. And let's just say Mark just really doesn't like me. Right? He doesn't like me. He doesn't like listening to the things that I say. Uh, and he hates standing. He just, he's a sitter. Right? He just loves to sit all the time. And so I tell him to stand, and he refuses to stand. Is he culpable then? Is he responsible then? Why? He's still unable to stand because he's uh, such hatred, such disdain for me, and such love of sitting that he is unable to stand. He's unwilling to stand. Why, therefore, is he then culpable? Because his unwillingness is not an unwillingness that is, uh, that is according to some sort of physical law, but it's because of his moral inability. He's unwilling to to do it. So I think that's a helpful illustration. When the Bible talks about us being enslaved, when the Bible talks about us not being free, it's not 
the illustration of us being tied to this chair. It's the illustration of us refusing to stand up. We're enslaved by our own wills. We're enslaved by our own desires because we love sin that much. Calvin said this, we allow that a man has a choice, has choice, and that it is self-determined so that if he does anything evil, it should be imputed to him and to his own voluntary choosing. We do away with coercion and force because this contradicts the nature of the will and cannot coexist with it. We deny that choice is free because through man's innate wickedness, it is of necessity driven to what is evil and cannot seek anything but evil. And from this, it is possible to deduce what a great difference there is between necessity and coercion. In other words, it is necessary for man to sin because it's in his uh, nature, but he's not coerced into it. He's not coerced into it. For we do not say that man is dragged unwillingly into sinning, but that because his will is corrupt, he is held captive under the yoke of sin, and therefore of necessity will uh, in an evil way. For where there is bondage, there is necessity, but it makes a great difference whether the bondage is voluntary or coerced. We, We locate the necessity to sin precisely in corruption of the will from which follows that it is uh, self-determined. So this is Calvin's answer. It's similar to Luther's answer, which is also similar to Jonathan Edwards' uh, answer. Uh, This is their answer to how can it be true that man can be enslaved to sin and yet God be uh, not unjust in holding him responsible for his sin. They say the difference is because your inability to do good is not rooted in God coercing you. It's rooted in the fact that you have a corruption within, and so you are naturally inclined towards sin. So, I want to give, I want to close by just giving uh, a couple of case studies and then talk about some of the, the, uh, the practical matters here. And so, case studies uh, in compatibilism, just a couple of other examples along with the cross of Christ that could, uh, I think, help to to give us a framework for understanding this idea of compatibilism. Again, compatibilism is just the idea that says God can be absolutely sovereign, and yet man can be responsible for his sin. God's sovereignty is not uh, somehow limited when it comes to man's sin, but man is not uh, therefore innocent or not culpable uh, for it. So, a couple of case studies, the first one being the hardening of Pharaoh hardening of Pharaoh. And I put a few uh, just facts there for you that uh, might be helpful. Three times Yahweh declares that He will uh, harden Pharaoh's heart. Six times Yahweh actually hardens Pharaoh's heart. Seven times the hardening is expressed as a divine passive uh, with Yahweh as the implied subject. In other words, Pharaoh's heart was hardened by Yahweh. And three times we're told that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, all right? And so sometimes you'll heard it, heard it teach that uh, Pharaoh hardens his own heart, hardens his own heart, hardens his own heart, and then God hardens it. You might have heard that taught before. That's not the biblical picture that you get here. In fact, you see some of the earliest references to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart are actually God saying, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. So, Did God harden Pharaoh's heart, or did He harden His own? The answer is both and. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardens his own. Why? 
according to Romans 9, for the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. We'll walk through that in Romans 9 uh, sometime in the next uh, couple of years. So the reason, the reason that he hardens Pharaoh's heart is as judgment on Pharaoh and also for the sake of Israel that they might see God's power to provide fuel for the journey ahead, that they might see the power of Yahweh as they embark on this journey. Another example that you can see of this where there is this idea of compatibilism that uh, mankind is responsible while God is still sovereign is the experience of Joseph. So remember the account of Joseph. Think about all of the things that happened to Joseph that are bad. All the examples of calamity, all the examples of evil, all the examples of wickedness, all the ways in which he was mistreated and afflicted. Think about all of those different things. He's betrayed by his brothers. There's deceit, deception. He's enslaved. He's falsely accused of rape. He's imprisoned. He's forgotten in prison. And on and on you could go. All of these different examples of ways that he has been sinned against. And, uh, and he's been sinned against by his brothers. He's been sinned against by Potiphar's wife. He's been sinned against by the person that forgets him in prison. On and on uh, you could go. And yet whenever he's speaking about this, in Genesis 45, he says, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house, house and ruler of all the land of Egypt. Which is why he'll say in, in Genesis fifty twenty, As for you, you meant evil against me. You're responsible. All of my brothers, you're responsible for what you did to me. You betrayed me. You sold me into slavery. You convinced my father that I was dead. You were responsible for that. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So you see God's sovereignty exercised in such a way that extends even to the responsible, sinful choices uh, that are made. So you can see here, like the death of Christ, these provide sort of case studies for us to understand this idea of uh, compatibilism and how both of the following things can be true, that those who sin do so willingly and are thus culpable for their sins, and yet also that God uses the sinful actions of man for good and thus is not to be considered uh, evil or blamed for evil. By the way, this is everything. Understanding this is absolutely everything when you're understanding God's uh, sovereignty and uh, the answer to theodicy, which uh, Zach talked about last week, which is the problem of evil. Why is there evil in the world? The answer to understand this, the key to unlocking it is the idea of motivation, intent, or purpose. Let me give you an illustration of this. Imagine that you walk into uh, a room, and the first thing you see is I just instantly just push your kid, right? Just hard. I push them down to the ground, all right? What's your first thought? Punch me in the throat. There you go. All right? That's great. That's a good first thought. Your first thought should be, I get that. That would be my first thought. Your first thought should be, I wonder what Jeff's thinking. 
right? Because what if I push them down because they cut in front of me in line? Is that a good reason? No, you should probably push me down then, right? What if I push them out of the way of a venomous snake that was about to bite them? Now, all of a sudden, would you feel bad if you punch me in the throat? <laughs> you should, right? Because all of a sudden, because I have good intentions in this same act, it's the same act regardless, but because I have good motivations, I have good purpose, I have good intentions in doing this one act, all of a sudden then you understand that act is not evil. It's good. The act doesn't change. I push down the kid. But the way that we understand the act changes on the basis of my motivation, on the basis of my purpose. So God does that. God pushes us down. But His motivation is always good. It's always motivated for His glory and for our joy, always and everything. His purposes are always good. So He uses evil, but He uses evil for good and thus is not evil but only good. Some of you, I think, in this room even could give testimony to the fact that some of the deepest grace you've experienced has been in the darkest days that you've ever experienced, which is one of the reasons why this is not just some sort of speculative exercise, right? It's not just us getting together and we just want to talk about philosophical terms like fatalism and compatibilism and libertarianism and, uh, and, you know, show off and impress our friends with these fancy philosophical terms or something. This is a profoundly practical thing for you and for I as it uh, begins to, to show us uh, and begins to affect the way that we live our life, the way that we have hope. Zach gave this illustration last week, which, which I thought it was, uh, was great, is if your understanding of God's sovereignty somehow stops when it comes to man's free choices, then all of a sudden you open yourself up to a whole host of problems. Like how does God keep that uh, airplane in the air if a terrorist freely chooses that he wants to take it down? All of a sudden, it, you see here that you run into this issue if God's sovereignty is somehow limited that He can't be sovereign over man's free choices. Then all of a sudden, if someone freely chooses that they want to commit this heinous act, God doesn't exercise His sovereignty over it. So, how do you have hope? How do you have confidence in the sovereignty of God if there's this limit uh, to it? That would be terrifying. It affects our understanding of suffering. If God is not sovereign, then He can't help. He can't really help you in your suffering. And there's no purpose behind it. It's arbitrary. It's completely arbitrary. There's no purpose in it. How does God work it together for good, according to His promise, if He can't control it or isn't using it? By the way, this is the, really the only comforting view of God's sovereignty. Some people like to use the language. I, I don't think this language is helpful. Just like I, I don't think the term free will is helpful because of all the baggage that comes along with it and the way that it's easy to misunderstand. But some people use the, the, the term or, or the phrase that God doesn't uh, ordain or orchestrate evil, but He allows it. But the moment that you say that He allows it, you either come to the uh, conclusion that He allows it for good reasons or that He just allows it arbitrarily. That's no hope. That's not good if God just arbitrarily allows things. We want a view of God that says that He allows something because He sees the better purpose in it. So He ordains it. He orchestrates it for our good and for uh, His uh, glory. And, uh, and so we don't necessarily know what good is going to come of this suffering. We don't know what good is going to come of the cancer. We don't know all of these kind of things. There's a billion things that God is doing 
in each and every example of His, uh, His providence, and yet we know that always it's motivated by a desire for good. And then lastly, it affects our view of prayer. If God isn't sovereign over the will of man, then we can't pray for our friends. What are we praying for them to do? You have a friend that's an unbeliever, what are you going to pray for God to do? Overcome their will? That's the one thing that you believe that He won't do if you believe in this view of free will that says that, uh, that God won't exercise His sovereignty in such a way as to influence or uh, in, in any way uh, overlap with man's responsibility. And so, really, this is the only view that gives us hope for prayer, that we're actually asking the one person who actually can do something about it to do something uh, about it. So, that's uh, divine sovereignty uh, and, uh, and human responsibility, uh, that God is absolutely sovereign over all things. There's no limits to His sovereignty, uh, and, uh, and that His sovereignty extends even to the choices that humans make. And yet, His sovereignty doesn't in any way mean that man is not responsible or culpable for his sin. So, I'm going to pray for us, and then I'll stick around. I'm sure there's a whole lot of… Uh, whole lot of questions that you might have, and uh, so I'll stick around and uh, be happy to, to dialogue about it. Uh, just uh, before I pray, just as a, an announcement, so the last few weeks we've been getting out uh, around 10, and, uh, and then we've encouraged you to go pick up kids. The problem is uh, the, the uh, kind of the children's equipping class still goes until uh, 10.15, and so if you're a parent who has uh, kids in uh, elementary school, let me encourage you take a couple of minutes, linger, go to the bathroom, grab a cup of coffee, and then uh, wait a few moments before heading over there so that the, the teachers there have a chance to, uh, to finish up with, uh, with their teaching. And uh, so, let me pray, and then we'll stick around for any questions you might have. Father, again, thank You for uh, today, an opportunity for us to, uh, to dive into what is a, uh, can be a difficult uh, topic. I pray that You would help us, Lord, that in no way as we think about Your sovereignty, would we uh, impugn Your motives? Would we impugn Your character? Would we think in any way that You using evil, that You being sovereign over evil, uh, in any way would imply that You are evil, that You are good? You are the very definition of and, and standard of good. And so, I pray that our hearts would rest in that and find beauty and hope and joy in, uh, in Your sovereignty, Lord. And, uh, and so, I pray that You would uh, continue, Lord, just, just to help us to think rightly about You and Your Word and to see You clearly and to appreciate uh, Your beauty as You've revealed it in Your Word. And so help us, Lord, help us to love You, to serve You, to have our hearts and minds transformed uh, for the sake of Your Son. It's in His name we pray. Amen.